History is written by the winners, but who talks about the losers? We do. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way, I want to jump over the pack, and here he comes! years ago when I was doing some boredom podcasting about baseball I did this whole so you didn't make the playoffs thing which was way easier than in the typical MLB season because only 14 teams missed the playoffs compared to the usual 20 or now 18 although a couple of those teams will barely be in it so basically it would cover two-thirds to three-quarters the league normally it's nice that we're at this happy medium where we're just above half the league and we're going to break down those 10 teams in what we call So You Didn't Crack the Eight. Yes, welcome aboard. This is episode 58 of Americans Watching the Footy. I am Benjamin Castle alongside my brother Ethan here in South San Francisco, California. We are also alongside Brian Harambe, who has finally calmed down for the moment. Knock on wood, maybe? Or just pat him a little bit instead. The knocking on wood would probably startle him enough to get him jumping off the bed. Tempted to test that. I'm not. So, with finals coming up, we will preview qualifying finals, elimination finals, and all that, but my rationale for doing this has been, you can get finals coverage everywhere. There aren't that many places that are going to talk about the 10 teams that aren't going to play finals, and are done after their 22 games. The only time you'd really hear about them is, you know, new coach hirings or player movements, but we really want to examine what they offered this season. And as a fan of one of the worst teams in the AFL, I was keen on doing this for multiple reasons. We did also enlist the good people of the r slash AFL community to provide input on all the team subreddits as well as the general AFL subreddit. So we'll be pulling from there and building off those points at times as well. We'll go in a random order for this just to make things more interesting both for us and for you. That way you can't just skip ahead to a part knowing where your team is. Hopefully this encourages more audience retention and people listening all the way through instead of just kind of scrolling through it until they get to their team anyway. So first up, as we spin the wheel, or really click the page. Oh boy. Oh, we're starting with Essendon, it appears. Yeah, this one's going to be fun because they are an absolute mess and it's not even one that it's hard to sugarcoat Anything that's been going on there in the past couple weeks off the Oval. I'll start with the good news, actually. They're really cleaning house up top now, which, after the botched firing of Ben Rutten... I mean, they successfully fired him. Task failed successfully. I mean, it's kind of like a failed execution where, yeah, he's dead, but we didn't get it done efficiently or humanely. A good execution is one... At least from what I can tell. You're telling me you don't have experience? Not as much as you'd think. But basically, 
if someone's going to be executed, it should be done quickly and to the point where they don't feel pain and they're just dead. You know, coach firings kind of should be the same way. Should be, you're fired. Here's why. Thanks for all the fun. Well, House mostly cleared up top, I'll say. Paul Brasher is out as president with David Barham in. CEO Xavier Campbell has departed. Multiple other board members out. Basically, the entire pro-rutten faction of the board has gone. However, list manager Adrian Dodoro does remain, and that rubs a lot of Essendon fans the wrong way. The Bombers finished this season at 7-15. They placed 15th with an 83.2 percentage. You know, the football was bad at the start of the year. It was bad at the end of the year. There were decent stretches in the middle, but some overarching themes throughout this year were the lack of defense. You know, they had defenders who could move the ball really well out of the back end. It's not like they were getting killed with turnovers by their defenders. It's just they couldn't stop anybody. The only defender that I really noticed consistently stopping anyone was Brandon Zirk Thatcher emerging as a really solid intercept mark in the final month and a half or so of the year. Having him be able to do that alongside a bit of work from Nick Hind certainly helped. It's funny because earlier in the year, I thought Zirk Thatcher was pretty lousy. The only thing we had noticed about him was that he had his pants pulled down at one point. And a lot of times I think the Bombers kind of had their pants pulled down proverbially. You know, as I've said... I was not expecting them to get back in the finals this year. They kind of got there by accident last year. I thought they should have been, you know, something middle of the pack-ish. A small step back, maybe in the 10th to 12th zone. I was thinking around 12th, personally. You know, a 9 or 10 win season and some understandable sophomore slumps. And then you're up for a big year three that would really judge Rutten's coaching. And if this core... Could be the sort of core that leads you to a flag. And we're never going to find out with Rudden. And we'll see what they end up doing with the actual playing group. Keeping the list manager does lead you to believe that most of these guys will stick around. But this whole thing just leaves a really bad taste in everyone's mouth. When it could have just been, we had a down year. We're ready to bounce back. Instead, everything's in flux. Yeah, it's like, are they going to start from scratch again? Because there are pieces there that I actually really like. You know, other than getting absolutely crapped on in round one against Geelong, Sam Draper became an outstanding ruckman over the course of the season. Fun to watch within the circle, taking different angles, an exciting goal scorer, just an entertaining player all around. You know, he's got a soccer background. Did I? Draper potentially kicked the goal of the year against Gold Coast, grabbing the ball out of the ruck and ending up taking it the distance and having a pretty long kick himself. I still think you go with Josh Dacos. I'm biased to a couple goals by Jeremy Cameron and Tyson Stengel. Stengel somehow didn't win this pass round. Bo McCreary did. And then Toby Nankervis back in round two, which wasn't even a goal of the week nominee. But Draper's not just talented. He's good both in and out of the center circle, and he's fun to watch. Continued development from Archie Perkins as well is largely trended in a positive direction and... Dylan Scheel is as vital as anybody in terms of his center clearance work. You can see just how bodied Essendon got a couple times in that statistic without him, including against North, I believe. Zach Merritt put up huge possession numbers just about every week. More meaningful than Darcy Parrish's, I would say, a lot of the time. Yeah, early in the season, Benjamin, you were really critical of Parrish for just kind of empty touches. I think once Andrew McGrath moved 
into more of a halfback role than Parrish was moving forward with more purpose in general. They don't really have depth issues, I'd say, in the forward two-thirds. And who they have in the back again, they can easily move the ball out of there. They just have to actually defend. And this is why it's so frustrating that they're making some pretty drastic changes when it looks like they're just a few pieces away from having something really solid. And that's even with all the injuries that hit them this year beforehand. You also had Kale Hooker retiring after last season. The term Hooker is offensive. Let's call him Kale Sex Worker. Draper started to fill into that role nicely, but Hooker's forward 50 presence definitely was missed. And then I'm going to milk this soundbite for all it's worth while we still can. Didn't play at all this year. Retired before the Dreamtime game. Hopefully he's in a better place mentally, but you can also really feel the hole that he left in terms of the energy provided as a smaller target and just a great piece providing energy all throughout the ground, capable of running pretty much anywhere and having an impact with or without the Sharon in hand. They needed that pressure guy, that fast tackler, and they haven't entirely solved that part of the puzzle. According to his Instagram, he looks like he's been doing well lately. A lot of adventuring, a lot of traveling. So from a personal standpoint, it seems like he's doing well, and I hope that keeps up. But yeah, they have no shortage of tall forward targets. Peter Wright had some monster games over the course of the year, and some of the bigger forwards, you know, they have huge games or non-existent games. Peter Wright was one of the more consistent ones throughout the year. There weren't too many weeks where we were asking, where the hell was Peter Wright? So the only thing they're really missing on that forward line is, you know, the smaller goal sneak type. And if they can fill that and add a bit defensively, they'll have a pretty complete team, especially if they can stay healthy. Kyle Langford got hurt in the first half of the first game of the season against Geelong. Might have even been the first quarter and didn't return until round 15 against the Eagles and... Boy, did he make a difference. You know, because of their stumbles to the finish line, they were 4-4 four and four with him. But that included wins over Sydney, Brisbane, and Gold Coast. Yes, Brisbane was missing some key guys, including Kadeem Coleman. But still, you beat the Lions at the gap. I don't care who's on their roster. That's legit. Harry Jones also had a delayed start to the season. He didn't play until round 11 at Port Adelaide. The Bombers went 5-5 five and five with him in between rounds 11 and 21. Really liked what I saw from him last year and thought that this was going to be his breakout year. Now I'm pinning it for next year. One of the really nice things for his growth is that there's another good key target right there in Peter Wright. So the pressure in that role won't immediately be on him. I do expect him to grow into a co-starring key guy, but maybe he has greater flexibility and can be somewhat of a tall running half forward like I like to see out of Ben King. Also, Jake Stringer is a question mark going into nearly every game. He missed six games this year, and Essendon went two and four without him, but he's also just so inconsistent. If his first shot is a goal, watch out. If it's not, well, Essendon need to watch out. There is a clear mental aspect to it. The obvious high point of the season for the Bombers was the streak from round 16 through 18 with the wins over Sydney, Brisbane, and Gold Coast. They would have won a fourth in a row had they managed to play any semblance of defense in the final minute against Collingwood or played a good first quarter. It was one of those everything had to go wrong and it did situations. 
And then, yes, they beat North the following week, but... That's North. They lost their final three, including getting absolutely humiliated in the final two games by Port Adelaide and Richmond, and then were even more embarrassing off the field. So as much as the slow start to the season, a 1-6 and and 2-10 and start could be considered a disappointment. And as much as the lack of defense was an issue, I'd say the final two weeks and the off-field aura, atmosphere, whatever you want to call it, would make that the low point of the season for the Bombers. As user Address Even put it on Reddit, I've learned that life is one crushing defeat after another until you just wish Essington was dead. That, by the way, was the top-voted comment on that post. Reminds me of a quote from LA Rams offensive lineman Andrew Whitworth after they lost Super Bowl 53 back in 2019, when he said, he said a bunch of different stuff, but he also said, at the end of the day, you're all going to die. Andrew Whitworth or Homer Simpson? Take your pick. Whitworth did finally win the Super Bowl this past season and promptly retired. Excellent offensive lineman, excellent person, was really happy to see that. But back to the other code of football, our main topic here. It's particularly disappointing to view this season for Essendon in the context of it being their 150th anniversary. With everything that they've accomplished, 16 premierships tied for the most ever, just having this being such a low point for them on and off the field is frustrating beyond belief for an outsider like us. One of the lowest points probably was a lot of that performance in the anniversary game Against Carlton round 13, they somehow only managed losing that by 26. But I just remember that game being a really poor effort all around. It was after that game that I questioned Dyson Heffel's leadership. But he managed to turn a corner and the team promptly did the same the next round, beating St. Kilda by 35. Yeah, they trailed Carlton by as much as 38. And it was way uglier than the score suggested. And yet then... They started this nice run of play in the following weeks. And they honestly should have ended up winning seven in a row. You think they should have beaten West Coast as well? or They ought to have beaten West Coast. You know, at some point, the Eagles were bound to win a home game. They were not going to go winless at home. We'll see, though, what Heppel's future brings. I know that he's been somewhat linked to a move to the Gold Coast, though I'm not sure how much validity those rumors have. We can talk about all the failures of this Essendon season. And we can completely ignore the fact that they lost to a team that only won one other game all year because it was a healthier Eagles team with a lot of momentum and because just the other negatives of this season for the Bombers kind of dwarf it in comparison. Also wanted to, without any surrounding context, mention that Ben Hobbs is alive, unlike what the photo from the announcement of his debut would want you to think. Why the hell did they put that in black and white? Benjamin, real quick, I want you to just name... One player from Essendon who pleasantly surprised you this year, and one who disappointed you. I'm glad you mentioned Hobbs, because I love the hunger he had for the ball, the willingness to do the dirty work. That's what you want from from a super young player. And I think he is going to grow into a really important part of their midfield half-forward group going forward. Had we not been talking about him, I probably would have said Matt Guelphie. He came along pretty strongly at the end of the year himself. In terms of someone out of whom I was looking for more this year, I was looking for some more consistency from Nick Bryan. He played one game last year and just five this year. Draper becoming so prominent definitely took him 
out of out of consideration a lot more. But between him and Andrew Phillips, I wasn't really sold for any length of time on either of them. And that situation of which Brian needs to take the upper hand. My pleasant surprise, I think there are a few different guys you could go with. I'm actually going to go with Kyle Langford just because I haven't thought much about him before, but also really liked Archie Perkins as an offensive spark plug and lightning rod. You mentioned Matt Guelphy and how he played at the end of the year. I like how he played early in the season. And then for my negative, I'm going to go with Zach Reed. I think someone really needs to take charge defensively, and Jordan Ridley is just one guy, and he needs more help there. So I'm going to say Zach Reed because the talent's there, the potential is there. He's just got to translate that into in-game performances. You can say the same about Jane Laverty as well, but I would say I like Laverty at times this year more than I did read. In terms of Langford, I always knew that he was a pretty accurate kick. He had kicked 13-3 in 17 games in 2021. Wasn't as accurate this past year, but another reason why he can still be that spark. And he's only going to be 26 next year. My closing note for Essendon, play Massimo D'Ambrosio every game. Not so much because he looks like a good player, which he does, but his name is Massimo D'Ambrosio. I hope they're able to hold on to what they have in terms of their younger group because a lot of that, because between what drove them to success last year and what is still very much in the pipeline, there's no reason for them to consistently be at the point where they are. It's a matter of the club getting their shit together in terms of structure and being able to realize the potential they have in their list. One down and four to go for this episode. Next up, we'll be traveling out of state to the team against whom Essendon got their first win of the season. And this is a team with a lot more potential to realize the promise they have, especially in terms of the young forward crop, which may only be getting stronger. It's time to talk about the Adelaide Crows, who finished 8-14, and in 14th place with a percentage of 86.7. Like they did last year, they started well again here in 2022, showing well against Fremantle in the first round of the game, which looks more and more impressive as we continue along in the season. They lost by just one, and then won three of the next five, two of those against finalists in Richmond and the Bulldogs. That round six game at Ballarat was probably more the dogs doing, But the round five game against Richmond was really when they had their defensive peak in terms of what their back three could offer. Of course, there was also Jordan Dawson's after the Siren Heroics in round three and showdown 51. Then starting in round seven, they cooled down. They lost five straight before beating the Eagles going into the bye. Between rounds seven and 19, their only wins were against West Coast and North. But then they got their stuff together for round 20 at the very least, and looked more than competent when they beat Carlton by 29. Blues weren't playing at their best there, and yes, it was at the Adelaide Oval, but that's a game in which Adelaide really seized control. They beat West Coast and North Melbourne in rounds 21 and 22 before handily losing showdown 52 to end the season. You can look at this season through a few different lenses. There was a same old shit element to it with the hot start before cooling off. But when you look at the individual talent, instead of just kind of the 
team's overall flow, I'd say it's pretty positive. I think that early surge followed by a midseason lull definitely raises some questions about Matthew Nix as a coach. And as those losses mounted in the midsection of the season, there were more and more questions asked about if he's a quality coach at all. Let's also note that four of their wins did come against the bottom two teams. But part of the development that you need to see, you need to be able to take care of bad teams. And they did that. They also played a couple other good teams somewhat close. They had pretty good showing for the first half plus against Melbourne round 16 before ultimately losing by 29. And they nearly got to Collingwood round 18. But of course, Collingwood won by less than a goal because that's what Collingwood does. My issue is they really didn't offer much on the road throughout the year. Other than that Ballarat game, their other road wins were a game that the outcome didn't matter. And it was just about Josh Kennedy kicking as many goals as he could. And it went over North down in Hobart. When you look at the individual talent, so this is a team with a ton of good forwards. Riley Philthorpe still hasn't fully hit his stride, but Taylor Walker's been outstanding. And he's on the back end of things. And I really want to focus more on the younger side because the Crows are moving more and more away from Tex as he ages. He's now 32. He'll turn 33 in late April of next year. Josh Rochelle burst onto the scene early in the year, though he did slow down as the season went on. Did end up injured as well. Didn't play after round 16. And you could say those nagging injuries might have been why he slowed down to begin with. Then McHenry and Jake Saligo also showing a lot of positives. I don't know how Saligo wasn't nominated for Rising Star this year at all. Lachlan Gallant coming along nicely as well. There were moments out of Luke Pedlar. And how about Darcy Fogarty at the end of the season? All of a sudden, he looks like someone who can take a bunch of big marks, kick pretty accurately, a highlight reel player, and a consistent, talented one. If he carries even half of that form into next season, he's going to be a force. And it was Fogarty's emergence that allowed Walker to have a less important goal-kicking role and open up more of his passing capabilities, which is something that we hadn't really seen from him in our three years watching the sport. And remember, Fogarty, at the start of the year, people were questioning his status at Adelaide altogether. The issue with the Crows' roster, though, is there isn't a ton of depth in the midfield. Rory Laird puts up amazing numbers every week. Ben Keyes puts up great numbers, but they don't get a ton of support. And Keyes, honestly, some of his numbers are kind of empty. If you want to look at young midfielders for him, Sam Barry is an absolute tackling beast in just his second year in the AFL. He led the league in tackles with 171 from 18 games. Laird also, of course, set that record this year with 20 tackles in a game. That was in that round 18 loss to Collingwood. We'll also note that Rory Sloan went down with an ACL injury in round five, and they clearly missed his leadership in the middle from there. He's just over 32 now, but still has a lot to offer. Hope to see another year or two out of him. Brody Smith did show some nice signs defensively, especially towards the end of the year, put up some big possession numbers. But even if you've got him and Dawson operating, and even if youngsters like Patrick Parnell and Josh Worrell end up really panning out, that's still... Four defenders, and you got six on the field at a time. You need more than six that are at least functional, if not better than functional. Billy Frampton had a couple moments throughout the season. And sounds like he may be on the way to Collingwood. Honestly, doesn't look like much of a loss at this point. Really, aside from 
that win against Richmond, there wasn't a game where they all had their shit together in the back the whole way between the back three that we had at the start of the year for them in Brampton, Jordan Butts, and Tom Duday. Butts and Duday were both not very good this year. They had very brief flashes, the sort of potential you'd be okay with seeing in young guys, but more established players like them need to offer consistency, and they did not do that. I'm going to label Butts as my disappointment for the year off that. I was expecting a lot more from him and from that back group in general, especially after what they were able to do shutting down as potent an attack as Richmond has, and they were never able to seize that again. As we said, no shortage of positives this year. If I have to pick one, I'm going to say Darcy Fogarty because I expected less of a huge positive from him late in the season than I did from Sam Barry throughout the year. My positive is going to be Jordan Dawson. I didn't know all that much about him heading into this season, and I think after round three, nobody would forget who he was, but... Watching and evaluating him throughout the season, it was much more than one memorable kick. I will say I did take note of him last year at Sydney. I didn't realize the kind of impact he would have, though, back home at Adelaide. And, of course, now I hear Celine Dion in my head because he did have that after the siren winner. But I'm glad he delivered far more than that this season. A huge functional ground gainer and a really versatile player for them. There are a couple different guys I could highlight as my disappointment. I'm going to go with Elliot Himmelberg because he had like maybe two good games all year, but Tom Duday's another one. If he wasn't so young, you could say Chase Jones, but he started to show some improvement towards year's end. Maybe Lachlan Murphy. Hey, he did get that free kick that allowed Dawson to kick the showdown winner. And also, Murphy then scored from a very similar spot late in the year as well, which... I loved. I will say, team-wise for the Crows, the next step of their development needs to be either bring in some established defenders or keep developing the ones you've got, because there are enough guys there that if they all pan out, you've got something really good, but what are the odds that everyone out of this group, between Nick Murray, Chase Jones, Patrick Parnell, Josh Worrell, all hit? And even if they all hit, what are the odds that everyone stays healthy? And what are the odds that they're going to be able to manage to keep them all when their solution to their problems looks more like it's going to be, hey, Isaac Rankin wants to come home. Look, it's going to be a hell of a forward group if he joins. It's already a damn good one. And a good and a damn good young one already. But they have work to do on the defensive end or else their ceiling's still going to be pretty low. Circling back to Elliot Himmelberg before we end this Himmelberg was goalless in his first two games, then had 10 in his next three, four in showdown, 51, and four against Richmond, and also two against Essendon. I really thought he had locked down his spot at that point. Even after showdown, I thought that. He then kicked 3-2 for the rest of the season and wasn't selected between rounds 10 and 19. One other thing I'd like to see with the Crows is to make their Ruckman, whether it's Riley O'Brien or Kieran Strawn, make them more useful outside of the center circle because O'Brien is among the tops in the league in generating hitouts, but doesn't do much else. And we've seen the value of versatile Ruckman. As a whole, though, the team that they have right now seems to have bought in. As Reddit user the Viking MFC said on my post in the Crows subreddit, he adds on, in pretty much every round, the effort and intensity have been clearly visible, even when the skills and execution let us down 
And even when the results weren't going our way, it's hard to say whether they're, you know, two or three years away from necessarily being a finals contender. But the blueprints are there if Matthew Nix and company are able to seize it. And I hope they do, because right now, when I hear their name, the main thing I'm thinking of is all the stuff that's come out once again about the collective mind camp. Thank you to Anchor by Spotify and all the other platforms that host us here. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Americans Footy to see our reaction to all things AFL in real time. We'll definitely have all sorts of things to say with finals coming up, with the women's season starting. Was able to watch a bit of round one live. Was happy that the Eagles got the win to start things over port. We'll definitely invest myself more into the women's game this fall for us here in the U.S. this spring in Australia. I am personally on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. May tap into more of the Eagles fandom there. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. You'll see me posting a bunch of stuff about high school football now that the season is underway. If you want to see what a uniquely American thing is like, come check it out. And Brian Harambe is on Instagram at CatNamedBrian. He is also about two feet away from me. On to our third team of five in this episode, and... Hey, now, now that Largo's gone, we, we can play the forbidden music. I don't think most of us were expecting the Giants to repeat as a final team this year, but I think we probably had them as sort of middle of the pack, and they definitely underachieved. They finished 6-16, six and 16, 16th on the ladder, an 84.6 percentage. Leon Cameron resigned after their ninth game. They were 2-7 and seven at that point. Mark McVeigh was the caretaker the rest of the way, and they kind of alternated under him between windows of really intense, exciting, fast-paced play, even if the games themselves weren't that close, and absolutely getting their doors blown off. And then they played a couple of competitive games against good teams to finish the season, and that was a nice change of pace because hardly any of their games were competitive all year. They were generally decided by halftime, and... It just made them boring. And I don't think of GWS as boring. They've got interesting players. They've got a great club song. And unfortunately, they played a lot of uninteresting games in front of hardly any people because their home crowds were awful. Except in Canberra. Make of that what you will, Tom Green fan club. That was definitely a highlight of the season, the Tom Green fan club, which we noticed at first, but... The broadcasters really got a kick out of it, so then we just kind of kept talking about it. I think it's just fun to seize on the one player that's, you know, from that alternate home site. It's like how we really seized on the Darwin-based players for the Gold Coast Suns when they were up there for those two games. You know, you have Tom Green playing in front of his friends and family for four games in the ACT. He's one of the younger pieces that moved along nicely this year, especially in that middle stretch once they looked revived under McVeigh. You know, not a lot of wins to show for it, but round 11 at the Gabba was a highlight with how they started out. They only lost that game to the Lions by 14. And while Brisbane definitely seized control of it by halftime and put it away late third, early fourth, the Giants got out to a 30-point lead in that and showed what strengths they still have in kind of bringing back that orange tsunami running straight through the middle. And McVeigh's style definitely catered more to Stephen Canelio's skill set. He was really quiet at the start of the year and was more and more prominent as the season came on. 
just like his eyebrows are extremely prominent on his head. The issue in that Brisbane game was their issue throughout the season. They just couldn't defend. I said it might have been as early as like round five or six. I forget exactly what it was. I'll have to do some research to find out. But I said this team has more than enough good forwards. And if you just put your best 18 players out there, you'd have more forwards than needed. So why not see if you could move one of those forwards into a defensive role? And enter Harry Hemmelberg, which surprised you in particular, even. Yeah, he was not the guy I would have thought of to put in that role, but he did very nicely with it. Came to the club as a defender, we learned. Then they tried doing it with Callum Brown, who has no business back there. He's really smooth, kicking for goal. He's a great runner. He's a good ball handler, and his talent should not be wasted trying to put him in one-on-one defensive contests because he doesn't have the physicality for that. That's really the only thing lacking from his skill set. He was maybe their best player in a round 16 win over Hawthorne where it was really shitty conditions. It was raining heavily throughout the week, throughout the game itself. And he was playing like they were playing in perfect weather. He was as smooth as it gets. 4-1 from 13 disposals in that game. Incredibly efficient with or without the conditions being what they were. And actually, he didn't have any scores at all. The rest of the eight games he played, I'm not sure if that was a lack of consistency in terms of targets or positioning, but there's no reason he shouldn't be able to recapture what he did in that game. It certainly didn't help that the Giants were forced into having to figure out a lot of things in terms of defensive arrangements. You know, Sam Taylor was a deserving all Australian, but you could tell when Phil Davis wasn't there and Davis wasn't there most of the season. Injured in round two against Richmond after in the first game, he did a really good job against Buddy Franklin. Taylor ended up doing a very good job on Buddy in that second Sydney Derby this year in round 20. But again, Davis out rounds three to 14 then played until injuring his other hamstring against Port Adelaide round 17. So just parts of five games for him this year. And who knows, that could be it for the soon-to-be 32-year-old and original Giant. It seems like there may be some list changes on the way for GWS. Tim Taranto has been linked to Collingwood and Richmond. Sounds like Bobby Hill could be headed towards Victoria as well, which would also be a sign that his treatment for testicular cancer is going well if we're talking about him returning to the Oval. I don't know what the opposite of dang it, Bobby would be, but I think that's deserved here. it. Looking toward your cats, Ethan, Tanner Brun has been linked with a move back to Geelong. He grew up there, was a Geelong Falcon, and I don't think you realized how young he is. He's only 20, but still a lot of young depth in the Giants really liked how Jacob Ware progressed this year from debut. And Lech Allier is more than a great story. It was definitely growing into the game over the last couple rounds. One of my issues with the Giants was if you look at that game against Fremantle to close out the season, they had times where their midfield was really operating well, but there were also times when they just kind of got throttled and had no answer. And they seem to be a team that doesn't have, or at least this season, didn't have much of a way of changing momentum. When things were going well for them, that's great, and they just kept it rolling, and when things weren't going well, there was really no method to stop it. I don't know how much having a new coach will change that. I don't know how much will come in the way of tactical adjustments there, but it's certainly 
something to be concerned about because you're not going to be able to just roll past every team, jump on them in the first quarter and never look back. I really don't know what to expect because they do have that new coach in Adam Kingsley. He's already been officially announced. We'll, of course, be sticking with Richmond through the finals campaign before making the full move to Western Sydney. And then with the potential list changes as well, but I'm hoping the stability does them good in some way, shape, or form, and I think it will. There could definitely be some growing pains in terms of the original Giants that are left having more and more diminished roles. I don't know if we're going to see the same skill out of Canelio again. Callan Ward is getting up there in age. And again, Phil Davis may be gone. Ethan, who are the couple players you want to highlight positively and negatively? I'm going to go with recency bias and go with Jake Steen as a positive. Some of the nastiest looking hair in the league, but a good ball moving defender who got involved offensively in those last couple games. My negative is going to be Braden Proust, not for a lack of talent, but for a lack of any sort of discipline, constantly getting suspended, giving away 50s, giving away frees. I don't know what it's going to take to turn him from a loose cannon into a reliable player. You know, it's funny. Toby Green did a pretty good job not getting involved in issues this year on the field. You know, he was involved in a couple of scraps, but nothing crazy above and beyond. You know, it would be stuff like, ooh, who's in that? Oh, Toby, of course, but not anything jarring. Whereas Proust, multiple times, lost his spot to guys like Kieran Briggs, even though talent-wise, he's a superior Ruckman. In fact, he might be, talent-wise, one of the best Ruckman in the entire competition. So that's my disappointment. He's old enough that he should have these things under his belt. I'm going to go back toward the beginning of our discussion and label Tom Green as my overall positive because when you hear Green and you think about the Giants, you think Toby for so many reasons. But from the top of the year, Tom Green was one of the players that I noticed the most for them. The issue for GWS is that as the amazingly as the amazingly titled user A Cock Blocked Orange has it on r slash AFL, their fate is tied to a few players. And if players check out, then the lack of motivation can infect the rest of the team. We saw that even in the second meeting with the Swans this year of all games. Continuing with the disappointing Ruckman theme, Matt Flynn was tasked with a lot this year with Bruce being out a decent amount of it. Between suspension, omission, a couple injuries, and I didn't see all that much out of him aside from a couple moments that convinced me that he's a really valuable part of the side and he's not a great kick by any means. I do want to close, though, with a positive about Jesse Hogan because he remains one of the best contested marks in the AFL, and that's something onto which they have to latch in order to be successful again. Between Hogan on the taller side of marking contest and Toby on the shorter end. Moving forward, I'm really excited to see what the Giants look like under new management because Leon Cameron's basically been their only coach when they fielded a competitive team. And Cameron was there for the first couple years under Kevin Sheedy anyway. So yeah, they really haven't had a full-on coaching leadership change. And in turn, we really aren't able to tell Are they underachieving? Are they overachieving? Is Leon Cameron a good coach? What I will say about Cameron, he seemed to be regarded just about universally as a super nice guy at the time of his resignation. 
Didn't hear a single negative thing about him. Didn't rub anyone the wrong way. People liked the guy. But to find out whether the Giants overachieved or underachieved under him, we need something to be able to compare to. And we're finally going to get that next year. The fourth non-finalist that we're going to tackle is a team that was in the eight for much of the season. In fact, they were in a finals position for just over half the season. That's what happens when you win five in a row near the start of the campaign. So Kilda ended up finishing 500, 11 of 11 in 10th place. They actually ended up allowing more points than they scored over the course of the season, ending up at 99.3%. I labeled them as a potential negative percentage team starting around round 18 or 19 and am unpleasantly surprised that that's correct. This is a team that I could not get an accurate read on for so long. I thought they could have been a wooden spoon team at the start of the year. So did I. I think I talked you into that more, but then they start off 5-1. and one. They look really good. They're playing these monster third quarters. That game against Richmond, breakneck first quarter in that one, then St. Kilda took control in the third and won that by 33. At that point, we started wondering, okay, are they legit? And I think the Saints are legit if Max King kicks accurately. We've established throughout the year from a very early point in this season that Max King's success can be entirely predicated on whether or not his first kick goes through. There is that mental side of it, like there is with Jake Stringer, but there's also the question of his actual kicking form. So it's a two-headed monster there. I think this is one that's more mental than physical, though there is a physical characteristic to it. And of course, after kicking 0-5 in round 22 against the Lions, he finishes the year kicking five goals no behinds against Sydney, when it all meant nothing anyway. In the words of Dan Hanabry, fuck. The Saints had a one-point loss in Cairns in round seven, basically playing Port Adelaide in the swamp, got smacked by Melbourne round eight, then beat Geelong round nine. They ended up going into the bye at eight and three, and then skidded to the finish going... Three and eight. You could tell what problems were going to be there in that round eight game. And then round 10 at Adelaide, they won thanks to two people, King and Brad Hill. Honestly, we talk about GWS having their fate tied to a few players. You could definitely say the same about St. Kilda. Max King, Brad Hill with what he contributed to their early season success on the wing. And then Rowan Marshall, a lot of the time in tandem with Paddy Ryder because When they were both healthy, it meant that the other was able to get meaningful touches forward, and we especially noticed that from Marshall. And that's going to be one of the biggest things that St. Kilda are going to have to be able to capture with a new Ruckman in that tandem, because obviously, Patty Ryder has retired. Jack Hayes had a really nice start to the season before tearing his ACL round six against the Giants, but he's also undersized as a Ruckman. It makes more sense for them to go after Brody Grundy than Melbourne, I'd say. There were times when this team made me look really dumb because they looked like they had far more quality pieces than I had imagined, where it was way more than just Hill, King, and Ryder. You saw some big games out of Jack Steele. You saw some big games out of Jack Sinclair. Sinclair turning into an All-Australian halfback in a year at age 27, is one of the best individual player stories of the season in terms of just pure skill. 
You would have nights where Jake Gresham racked up score involvements like crazy. Hopefully his knee injury isn't all that serious and will allow him to continue playing well. He's out of history with that. But there were a lot of guys who showed flashes that didn't have consistency. Guys like Mason Wood, guys like Mitch Owens, although he gets a bit of a pass because he's young. Same thing with Nazai Wanganin Millera. Jimmy Webster had flashes. I guess Tim Membrews were consistent. Especially toward the back of the year. When the Saints did better for themselves in the later part of the season, it was because both he and King were doing all right for themselves, especially once Ryder went down injured. Dougal Howard, Callum Wilkie both showed pieces, but didn't have the consistency. And Cooper Sharman was one that at times had some really, really major dirt moments. I'm left wondering how much of St. Kilda's success was from a talent standpoint and how much of it was from a coaching standpoint. I still can't get a read on how good of a coach Brett Ratton is. I think most of his effective adjustments were on the simpler side. They were good adjustments, but they seemed relatively basic. In a lot of ways, this was a very St. Kilda season. Ethan, you were able to label it that way, even though we just started watching this sport seriously two and a half years ago. And multiple Saints fans on Reddit said the same. User Year of the Squirrel concurs with your opinion. Start off with heaps of promise. Beat teams we shouldn't. Fremantle, Richmond, Geelong. Give away games we shouldn't. Essendon, Port Adelaide. And no consistency at all with the teams around us on the table. And the second something throws them off their game style, they don't have a plan B. You know, I was hoping you'd read these Reddit comments in the... Like text-to-speech voice that you see on those YouTube videos that are just Reddit comments that get an inordinate amount of viewers. Welcome to Americans Watching the Footy. As Dan Hanabry said, Doc. Let's remember that the Saints are having a review, and hopefully that'll mean better things on the development end. David Noble is involved in that. Good to see him staying in AFL circles. Remember, he was head of football at Brisbane before becoming coach at North. So maybe that executive position suits him better. The individual positive surprise this year for the Saints, at least in my eyes, was Marcus Windhager, who really came on strong when the rest of the team struggled later in the season. He's 19 years old. He looks like he's maybe 14. He's already establishing himself as an elite tagger. There were other guys who were... Nice surprises, but he's my pick. I really enjoyed watching him, and I'm excited to see what he does in the next few years. They've got a couple other young players that are interesting, like Mitch Owens, like Naziah Wanganeen Millera, but I think the immediate returns on Windhager give you a lot of reason to get excited. I would say limiting Lockie Neal to 16 disposals is excellent. Also, three rounds before that, in round 19, he completely shut down Tim Kelly Kelly and Adam Simpson made excuses about illness and things like that, but four touches. My disappointment for the Saints is going to be, this is actually a tough one. I think I'm going to go Ben Patton, just because he was the sort of guy that needed to really step up his game to turn them into a finals team, and it happened very infrequently, though nice set of eyebrows. So who are your positive and negatives? With Winhager being the obvious one, I'm also going to go on the younger end for positives and highlight Mitch Owens' small work. Not a huge goal return yet, but a positive mover in the ball. Consistently got double-digit disposals in 
the full games that he played. At just 18 years old, will turn 19 in early October. I'm excited for what he can bring in terms of positive ball movement and being another one of the smaller forward targets along with Jack Higgins. Accuracy has been a question for Higgins, and so they need somebody to be able to remedy that. I'd love to see what Josh Battle brings as well as an option, maybe also having him move forward as well. What's a battle? <laughs> Let's go. Redditor, all taken, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, also thinks Battle could be another key forward option as well. For a lot of the year, I was disappointed with Ben Long. I think that he just wasn't placed in the right spot, but I really did want to see more out of Cooper Sharman this year. He is still just 22. He is on the rookie list, but this year was a big opportunity for him to assert himself at the AFL level, and he didn't manage to do that. One more team to talk about in this first part of So You Didn't Crack the Eight. You know, when you've made the last two preliminary finals, you ought to have big things expected from you. I mean, starting at 1-5 is big, but more in the terms of a big surprise and in the nastiest way possible. More in the way of a big steaming turd on your plate. And yet, Port were able to salvage a lot from the season in terms of the playing group, despite no coaching change. When we previewed teams at the start of the season, we saw Port Adelaide as a definite finals team. We saw them finishing sixth or better. It was a question of would they crack the top four, not would they make the eight. And yet, here we are. They finished 10 and 12. They finished in 11th. They did have a 110.3 percentage, which pretty much tells you if they could have pulled out a couple of those closer games early in the year, they'd still be playing right now and we wouldn't be talking about them just yet. They did have a pretty rough start to the season in terms of scheduling. They were at the GABA round one. They led a lot of that game and Brisbane had to have a strong fourth quarter to win that. And then they got spanked by Hawthorne in Adelaide by 64. And then they lost Showdown 51 after the Siren. And then they got spanked by Melbourne. They were goalless in the first half. And the biggest thing I remember from that is Zach Butters smiling as he ran off after costing them a potential goal at the end of that first half. Then they lost to Carlton in round five. They ended the game strongly because it's kind of the way Carlton operated at the start of the year. Strong second quarters and disappointing second halves. So say what you will about the hand that Port were dealt, but they should have at least been able to manage two wins from that. They then won their next four and five of six before the bye with the only loss coming at Cardinia Park. It was after round eight against the Bulldogs when they won by 17 that we thought, okay, they're somewhat on track again in terms of playing the style they want, but still those early losses we expected would doom them and they ultimately did. Had a few nail-biters at the back end of the season, beating Gold Coast by two in a game with a really great ending and just a fun one throughout. If you didn't watch that one closely, you might want to go back and do that again during the offseason. They lost by eight at Fremantle the next week. They lost in three straight weeks to Melbourne by 14, Geelong by 12, Collingwood by six. Unbelievably, despite the start they had, a spot might have still been there for the taking. Could have had even more drama in round 23. Really, after about round four was when we started questioning Ken Hinckley as a coach, looking at this as a team that has a lot of talent that underachieved. 
But I will say this. They had a tough schedule this year that they didn't have the prior couple seasons. And in the past couple seasons, they haven't usually played that well against top competition. They had just been really good at beating up on lesser teams and combine a tougher schedule with a couple weeks where they didn't beat up on teams they typically beat up. There's your season. So maybe we were a little high on them to begin with. I still think they have a lot of talent and misused some of it and underachieved a bit, though. And it's a team that has a lot of promise on the younger end of their list. Connor Rosie turns 23 in January. He started off a year poorly, but only because he wasn't placed in the right spot. And once he was put back in the middle and as a follower, he got into all-Australian form. Zach Butters turns 22 in a week and a half. The Rosie Butters tandem was probably my favorite thing about Port this year. Sam Powell Pepper will be 25 at the start of next season. He looks way older. And he plays like a gritty veteran, not a guy in the prime of his career where he's just kind of, you know, maybe a little bit burned out physically, but is willing himself over the edge. I can see why he's such an endearing player. He has he has no ability to tone it down at all. It's like SpongeBob driving. When he's playing, he's always flooring it. Todd Marshall turns 25 in October. He's one of the most accurate kicks of the game. Would love to see him bulk up a bit, but I'm not sure if that's possible on his frame. Defensively, I really began to notice Dan Houston more this year. From the beginning, he was one of their most versatile players coming from halfback. Was involved in scoring a decent amount early on in the year when they ended up getting those first couple wins. And... And you had more players featuring in different parts of the ground, also because they were without a ruck for nearly half of the year. Scott Lysa dislocated his shoulder round four against Melbourne and didn't play again. He had infections and all sorts of things that piled up on him. Sam Hayes played round five through 11, was omitted the rest of the way. Bryn Teekle was added in the midseason draft. He debuted round 14 against the Swans, looked good, and then broke his collarbone. He didn't play again until round 21 against Richmond, and then we didn't see him in the final two games. They didn't have Charlie Dixon until round 11. He was taking ruck contests in the forward half and matched up against guys like Jared Witts very nicely because Charlie Dixon's a big boy. Dixon ended up taking a decent amount of ruck contests all over the ground. I mean, he had always done that 450 work like we've seen from guys like Tom Hawkins and Taylor Walker, but he definitely had to do it more throughout the ground this year. You know, when we finish these breakdowns, one of the things we do towards the end is we talk about someone that pleasantly surprised us and someone that unpleasantly surprised us. You could honestly answer Jeremy Finlayson for both. First half of the season, he was awful. He was omitted a couple times. He wasn't able to fit into that same forward role he had with the Giants. And then they put him in a ruck spot and he wasn't winning hitouts, but they never expected him to. He still managed to generate enough clearances that he actually did a really nice job kind of being shoehorned into that role. And I was really impressed with him in the second half of the season. And for all my criticism of Ken Hinckley and his coaching, I will say having the wherewithal to get Finlayson in that spot, get him comfortable playing away from his natural position and make him into a valuable Ruckman despite getting beat to damn near every hit out. That was really good coaching, and I don't know how much of that is Hinkley, how much of that is his assistants, but all parties responsible deserve a lot of credit for that. 
And it means that as Tickle and Hayes come along, they'll be able to test them out in the forward 50 more as well, be able to rotate Ruckman throughout the game, be able to rest those guys more if necessary. So there's a good foundation there for orthodox and unorthodox ruck work, depending on what the matchup may require. Considering what they were able to do without a proper Ruckman at times, it gives them more opportunities to just put their best guys on the field, regardless of position. And that's certainly not a bad thing. Every team wishes they could do that. Richmond just tends to do it anyway. Richmond also has pieces that you can just slide around like it's nothing. They're a unique situation. There aren't many guys that I can label as that throughout the rest of the league. Maybe Dan Houston could end up being that. Not entirely sure. Looking toward the midfield, you know, you come into the season thinking about what Port tend to have. Ollie Wines was the Brownlow medalist. Travis Boak has been so consistent. It was down years for both of them, but they aren't the be-all and end-all of Port anymore, so that didn't hurt them nearly as much as a lot of people would have thought. That shows the impact of Connor Rosie and Zach Butters stepping up. And you know, there wasn't any one position group that consistently let them down all season because defensively they held up a lot of the way as well. After being injured early on, Alir Alir grew back into the team and was able to diversify his game a little bit more. He's still a great interceptor, but he's not just that. He did have some pretty low disposal numbers later in the season, but made some plays when it counted. And I think the lower numbers are just teams trying to avoid kicking it in his direction. And if you're the focus of an opposing game plan, that's a sign of respect. Now, the difference between a really good player and a great player, both will be the focus of opposing game plans, but a great player can have an opposing team doing everything they can to stop him, and he still impacts the game heavily. Can O'Lear take that step? Remains to be seen. But at minimum, he's very good. Also damn good this year on the defensive side, after the first few rounds, was Tom Jonas. And he's someone who a lot of people criticized early on in the year for his leadership or lack thereof, but remains strong in one-on-one con- in one-on-one contests throughout the year, Highlighted his work a couple times, especially in the 23-point win over the Sydney Swans at home in round 14. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, is it because someone was out with COVID that game? I don't remember. I think someone was missing, but I forget if it was COVID or just people being. All right. Footy. Jonas. Uh, can we move it along? Oh, wait, no, I got it. I got it. I noticed, him in, I noticed Jonas in particular in... The two-game stretch between rounds 14 and 15. Round 14, that 23-point win against the Swans. And then round 15, the two-pointer against the Suns. That was when they were without Tom Clurry and Darcy Byrne-Jones in the back, both in COVID protocols. And both of those, and both of them, particularly Byrne-Jones, caught my eye as positives in the back six for Port as well. There's no doubt about their depth throughout the age spectrum, throughout all different parts of the ground. They just haven't managed to put it together in years past to make a grand final. And this year to get things together right away to even contend. So in that respect, I do think coaching is a big part of it, if not the most important part. Bottom line with Port is that they have no business being where they were on the ladder throughout this season. You compare the individual pieces on their roster to the other teams that we're talking about, tonight and tomorrow, they're in a different league. Who impressed you? Who underwhelmed you? Give it to me, Benjamin. 
You shouldn't say that to your brother. Uh, I should not. I talked about Dan Houston a lot early on, so I think I'm going to stay away from him here and talk a bit more about someone who debuted in the later part of the season. Jace Burgoyne played the last eight games of the year and fit in really nicely, largely doing halfback and midfield work, liked his movement along the wings. It's great to see Port starting to get these father-son picks as well. He's the son of Peter Burgoyne, the nephew of Sean. And at just 19, he ought to be a big factor wherever Port put them for years to come. He and Dan Houston offer a similar sort of versatility, though I see Houston as more of an inside player. In terms of disappointments, Riley Bonner is not a player of whom I thought super highly going into this year, and then he was a really inconsistent kick out of the back half a lot of the year. I was glad that Burgoyne ended up supplanting Bonner somewhat in that role toward the end of the season. I'm not sure really how much value Bonner will bring to this list going forward. My positive for Port Adelaide is going to be Willem Drew, just because I never really thought about him before this year. Had a couple really good tagging performances that helped sway the outcome in a couple games. Only 23, still room to get even better and help bridge the gap as one core ages out. My negative is going to be Mitch Georgiatis, who I've talked in the past about how he really leans on Charlie Dixon to have success. But whether or not Dixon was in there, there wasn't much going on for Mitch this year. I think his struggles were one of the biggest factors to Port Adelaide ending up where they did. They needed him to kick accurately. They needed him to be able to perhaps use his size in some rock contests with the injuries they had, and he just didn't deliver. He's still super young. The ceiling is clearly quite high, but this was a season to forget for him. A season to forget in some respects for Port but as Jack A24 put it on r slash we are Port Adelaide, it was definitely a changing of the guard season between Rosie and Butters taking those top roles from Wines and Boke, getting more important touches from Dan Houston, Willem Drew. Hadn't highlighted Ryan Burton in terms of back half work, but he's another one that I really liked a lot of the year. And I want to see what Port can get in this offseason because... They'll get some sort of compensation for Carl Amon leaving, most likely for Hawthorne. There's been talk about Josh Dunkley potentially coming over. I know his partner plays netball in Adelaide. Dunkley could be another piece to help bridge the gap between these eras that Port have. But Port and Carlton are two pretty complete teams that managed to miss the eight for one reason or another. And we'll definitely talk a lot about the Blues when... The wheel comes around to them in the second part of So You Didn't Crack the Eight, which will be released tomorrow. Until then, again, if any other news comes up, and some news likely will come up, like Peter Laddams getting suspended for just being the dirty player that he is, good on you for getting rid of him, Port. Our thoughts on that are at Americans Footy on Twitter. Again, I am at BenjaminHK01. I am at Castle Media. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is on Instagram at cat named Brian. So next time, in some order, we'll look at the Blues, the Suns, the Hawks, and the bottom two, the Kangaroos and the Eagles. Those will be fun. Those were my knuckles cracking. <laughs>